Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. I'll be preaching this morning in verses 1 through 27. And as you turn there, please join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Lord our God, we thank You for the Word we have already heard today, already in this worship service. Your call to worship. Your, your law read to us. Your assurance of pardon. Lord, we ask and pray that You would continue to speak to us now in Your Word through this sermon on John 11. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to, his disciple, to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After seeing, saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
May God bless the reading of His holy word and let His church say, Amen. Don't you love those few words in this passage here spoken from the mouth of Jesus? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I can think of no greater news in all of Scripture than those few words right there. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It aptly summarizes the life and ministry and the purpose of Jesus coming into the world and going to the cross. It even summarizes all the thrust of the Old Testament foreshadowing Christ who is to come. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It's the Gospel. It is the good news, isn't it? I love John chapter 11. It is near and dear and precious to my heart. I'll never forget the first time that I read this, not for the first time. I was in seminary, my second year, sitting in a Greek class, and we were doing devotions from the Greek New Testament in John chapter 11. Now, I was going through a horrible time of suffering. And those words leapt off the page to me. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I learned that when I suffer, my life is not out of God's control. I learned that my suffering isn't meaningless. I learned that there are certain lessons you can only learn when you are suffering. I learned that Jesus isn't just the resurrection and the life. I learned that Jesus is my resurrection and my life. My affections towards God on that day changed from angry and confused about my suffering to trustful and peaceful in the sovereignty of God. I began to develop a high view of God's sovereignty. I I was saved and converted already, but the day that I saw this passage of Scripture, my heart was strangely warmed. The Lord's Spirit was at work in my heart, opening this passage to me. And it was the chapter that started it all for me. I began to go down the road of Calvinism that has led me here standing before you today. All because of John chapter 11 and the Spirit's work in my heart from reading it. This passage teaches us that there are two lessons that we can only learn when we are suffering. This passage teaches us that there are two lessons we can only learn when we are suffering. What are they? First, I want you to see the first lesson here in this passage. Please take special note of this. Lesson number one, God ordains our suffering for His glory. God ordains our suffering for His glory. Let me show that to you here in this passage. 
Here we see the loving delay of Jesus in these few verses. We meet the friends of Jesus, the beloved friends of Jesus, a family in Bethany, Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, but we don't meet them first, do we? What do we meet first in verse 1? We don't meet Lazarus and Martha and Mary first. We meet the suffering first. A certain man was ill, painting for us what is to be the most extraordinary sign that Jesus does in all of the Gospel of John, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's setting the stage for us, for Lazarus being called out of that tomb. And Jesus is close to this family. And it's in verse 2, this family is so popular, Mary is so popular, John tells us that this is that Mary the one who poured the expensive perfume and anointed the feet of the Lord and wiped His feet with the hair from her head. The story hasn't even happened yet. It's coming up in the next chapter. And yet, this family is uh, so notable that this act is even explained for us before it happens, for the readers. This is that brother of Mary who was ill and sick. And so they did what any of us would do in that situation if we had known Jesus, they sent word to Jesus. We see that in verse 3. Their message to Him is simple. Lord, He whom You love is ill. It's the end of the message, isn't it? They, they draw from their love of Jesus and Jesus' love for them. They don't presume to tell Jesus what to do. They don't say, Lazarus is sick, please send word and heal him. Lazarus is sick, please come back with the messengers. Hurry now, come here and heal him. Lazarus is sick, please tell us what is going to happen to Lazarus. They don't do any of that. They just tell Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And they trust that whatever decision that Jesus makes, it is in the interest of of His love for them. Look at Jesus' message that He sends back to them in verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus tells the messenger and the messenger takes this message back to Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Now, before we go any further, Stop and think about this. Jesus knows all things, doesn't He? He knows that Lazarus is sick. He knows that Lazarus is going to die. He knows that Lazarus is going to be put in a tomb. And He knows that He is going to call Lazarus from the dead. The only problem is, Martha and Mary and Lazarus aren't privy to any of this information, are they? All they receive is the word from Jesus through the, the, the message that comes back to them. This illness does not lead to death. Wonderful news, Jesus. But for whatever purpose the suffering exists, for whatever purpose this illness is here, it is not meaningless. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. A few weeks ago, 
I received a text message from my wife when something like this. Come home now. Too much screaming to call. Hannah, broken arm. So I did what any father would do. I texted back and said, that's too bad. Don't bother me. Don't rush me. Be home when I'm ready. No. I did what any father would do. I dropped everything, got my car, rushed home, scooped up Hannah, put her in the car, and off to the emergency room we went. Little Hannah sat in the back seat of my car, sobbing. Dad, when are we going to be there? What are they going to do to my arm? I wish we were there already. And then she fell asleep. She's fine now, by the way, and the cast is off. Her arm is doing fine. She can almost touch her shoulder. A lot of times we expect God to intervene in the way that we would with our own children. Immediately. We're going through a hardship. We're going through a suffering we're afflicted, we're sick, we're going through a tribulation and we pray and cry out to God and we expect God to do what we would do with our own children and, and, and rush in and fix the problem and fix the suffering and help us immediately and, and heal all our problems. And like a little child, we're there crying and praying out to God, God, why is this suffering happening to me? How long is this going to last? What will be the outcome of all of this? The time of our suffering, it doesn't feel like our suffering can glorify God. Sure, you've been there. So have I. A whole range of emotions floods our souls and burdens us. We feel confused. We feel abandoned. We feel alone. We feel lost. We feel afraid. We feel exhausted. We feel angry. And we're wondering, God, are You there? God, do You hear me? God, do You see my suffering? Do you, do you know? Brothers and sisters, we have two options as we read this passage. Option number one, either God ordains our suffering for His glory. That's option number one. Either God ordains our suffering for His glory or option number two, my suffering is not ordained by God and is outside of His control. Those are the only two options that we have. Either God is sovereign and He ordains our suffering for His glory, or God is not sovereign. And my suffering is meaningless and God is powerless to stop it. Which thought is more disturbing to you? I would rather be confused in my suffering and yet have a trust of knowing that God has ordained my suffering for His glory. 
I may not understand it in the moment. It may not all make sense. I can't read into the providence of God. I, we don't really always know or see or understand God's purposes behind all of the reasons for our suffering, but this passage teaches us, before it teaches us anything else, that God ordains our suffering for His glory. We're suffering, and God has ordained it. His delay in coming to our rescue is for our good. Because only when we're suffering will we learn the lesson that God ordains our suffering for His glory. That's lesson number one. What's the second lesson in this passage? Lesson number two is God ordains our suffering to increase our faith in Him. So lesson number one, God ordains our suffering for His glory. And lesson number two, God ordains our suffering to increase our faith in Him. Look with me at verse 5. Just in case you doubt Jesus' love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, look at verse 5. Now Jesus did what? He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The suffering did not negate Jesus' love for them. It wasn't a sign that they were unloved. No, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So what did Jesus do in response for His love for them? Look at verse 6. So when He heard that Lazarus was ill, here's what He did. He stayed two days longer in the place where He was. Does that strike anyone else as odd? If you love them so much, well, why not run directly? Go back with the messenger, Jesus. Go back with the messenger. Go back to Bethany. Reach out, touch Lazarus, and heal him. Jesus doesn't do that, does He? He remains where He was two days. And then all of a sudden, verse 7, now He's ready to go back to Judea. Let's go to Judea again. What? The disciples don't understand this, do they? They've heard the message of Jesus that the illness of Lazarus doesn't lead to death, and they know that back in Jerusalem is back where the Jews had just made an attempt to stone and to kill Jesus. And that's what they tell him in verse 8, don't they? The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Why do you want to go back there again, Jesus? If he's ill, but it's not going to lead to death, there's no reason to go back there. Why risk life and limb to heal Lazarus if he's going to get better. Jesus explains to them the purpose of his ministry. He gives an analogy in verses 9 and 10. In the Jewish world and the ancient Near Eastern world, people didn't wear watches on their phone and they didn't watch the time clock down to the minute. Five o'clock, time to go home. No, there were 12 hours in the day, essentially. You worked from sun up to sun down. When the sun came up, you went to work. And when the sun set, you went home. And Jesus says, here are there not 12 hours in a day. The sun's shining, it's time to be at work. 
Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the light of the world. If Jesus is the light of the world, then He's there in the world, so it's time for Him to be doing the Father's work. He's not done yet. He's not done with His work. He's not done with His teachings. He's not done with His signs and miracles. And He hasn't gone to the cross yet. And so, it's necessary and time for Him to go see Lazarus. So He tells them, doesn't He? In verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples still don't understand what's happened with Lazarus. They just assume that if Lazarus is sick and he's asleep, then he's getting what all of us need when we're sick. Good rest. And when the time comes along, he'll wake up and be well. Jesus has to tell them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus has died. And then He gives the reason why. For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. What? So you mean to tell me that we waited here and in delay... And Lazarus has died, and you're glad that you weren't there so that we can believe. Yes, that's what Jesus is saying here. And so, doubting Thomas, not so doubtful here, musters the courage of the disciples and says, well, let's just go with him and follow him that we can die along with him. You see, this delay of Jesus in going to Martha and Mary and Lazarus was loving. It was loving for Jesus to do this because God had ordained this suffering for the increase of faith. Consider Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, he says. We don't know what it was but it caused him great affliction. It caused him great suffering. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he prayed three times that God would remove the thorn in the flesh from him. He prayed three times, God, I want you to take this suffering away from me. It's not fun. It hurts. I don't like it. What does the Lord tell Paul? Oh, sure, you've got enough faith. I'll take your suffering away. No. What's he tell Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul would never have learned that lesson, that the power of Christ was made perfect in his weakness. He would have never have learned that lesson had he not had the thorn in the flesh and the suffering. Think about Philippians chapter 4. We love Philippians 4.13, don't we? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture, isn't it? But the passage isn't about winning football games. Sorry, Tim Tebow. That's not what that passage is about. Paul finished saying in the previous verse that he had learned the secret to being content in whatever situation he faced. Whether he was in want or in need, whether he had plenty or whether he had little, he had learned the secret. By the way, Philippians was authored from jail. Paul was in suffering and affliction at the time that he wrote those words. What was the secret that Paul had learned? Well, he had learned that he could do all things through Christ who strengthens him. 
You see, God ordains our suffering to increase our faith in Him. Which begs the question then, if God ordains our suffering to increase our faith in Him, then why did He go raise Lazarus from the dead? I don't know if you've ever read John 11, but spoiler alert, He raises Lazarus from the dead. If He had ordained the suffering to increase faith, why not have Martha and Mary learn to trust Him through their grief? Wouldn't that have been more realistic? The sign that Jesus does, it's the climactic sign in the Gospel of John. Remember, the signs are evidence. The evidence proves that Jesus is the Messiah. After this sign, fates are sealed. The Jews are are going to crucify Jesus after this. The sign was like a parable, acting out a parable that illustrated externally what Jesus does internally. One commentator wrote, it was an illustration of what Christ is and wishes to be for all those who trust in Him. It was never about raising Lazarus from the dead. You see, All of us are like Lazarus. We're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We are afflicted with the illness of sin and that illness always leads to our death. And we are powerless and helpless to save ourselves. But you see, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the Good Shepherd who calls His sheep by name. Remember? And he goes to Bethany to call one of his sheep by name, Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth, is what he'll say to him. And that's what Jesus does for each and every one of us when he saves us. At the moment when we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, unable to save ourselves, guilty of the death that we're afflicted with, Jesus calls us by name. calls us by name, and He gives us spiritual life and eternal life that we could never have apart from Him. You see, God ordains our suffering to increase our faith in Him. This sign was never about Lazarus. It was proof that Jesus is the Messiah, that He's the resurrection and the life. And that He has ordained our suffering to increase our faith in Him so that we might better see Him. So what are the two lessons that we can only learn in our suffering? Well, the first lesson is that God ordains our suffering for His glory. And second, that God ordains our suffering to increase our faith in Him. But there's a catch. There's only one way that these two lessons can be true for you. And I want you to see that here in verses 17 through 27. You can only learn these two lessons only if Jesus is your resurrection and your life. We see here in this passage that Jesus goes to Bethany, Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. 
A group of mourners had come from Jerusalem to console Martha and Mary over the death of Lazarus. And Martha hears that Jesus is approaching. And in verse 21, the Apostle John records for us the tender conversation between Jesus and Martha. What does she say to Him? Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. She had been hanging on to that promise from Jesus that this illness did not lead to death. And she just knew. She just knew in, in her heart that if Jesus, had been, if Jesus had been there, none of this would have happened. He would have easily been able to reach out and to touch Lazarus and to heal him of all his afflictions. But Martha is not devoid of faith in Christ, is she? She has become strengthened more than she knows through this suffering. For look at verse 22. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Did she have some sort of inkling of what Jesus was going to do? Did she know that maybe Jesus will raise him from the dead? Or did she just have a trust that despite the suffering, that Jesus is still the Christ, that Jesus is still the Messiah? We don't really know, do we? But we do know this. Jesus promises her, your brother will rise again. And Martha receives that. She believes in the resurrection, and rightfully so. She places her hope there and tells Jesus that she believes and knows that her brother will rise again on the great day. Jesus tells her that's not what He's talking about. He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. So even if your suffering leads to death and you die, you don't really die. That's the good news of being a Christian. Our suffering doesn't lead to death. It never leads to death. It leads to eternal life. Everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. And then He puts the question to Martha, do you believe this? Is this more than just a theological concept that you understand, Martha? Is this a conviction that you hold deep in your soul? Do you believe this? What does Martha say? Look at her confession of faith. Verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She believes what Jesus has said of Himself. She believed it to be true. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Not just a theological concept. She believed it personally. It was a conviction that she had and that she held near and dear to her heart. One of the great privileges that I've had of being your pastor these last three years is learning many of your stories of suffering. Hearing them personally from you. Sicknesses and illnesses that you've had. Disappointments. Grief. Loss. Tragedy. Hurts. Violence done to you. Not only have the joy and the privilege of hearing that from you, but you've heard that from me too, haven't you? 
We have carried those burdens and that suffering together. The thing that we have to understand is that whatever suffering it is that we endure, I want you to know that our suffering can only last a lifetime. That's it. Isn't that good news? Our suffering can only last the rest of our lives. You see, Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead, but that didn't end all the suffering in Lazarus' life, did it? In fact, let me give you a little statistic. 100% of the people Jesus healed died again. Didn't they? Lazarus was resurrected so that he could die again one day. Our suffering can only last a lifetime. The question is, is Jesus our resurrection and our life? Do we trust Him? Do you trust Him as your resurrection and your life? How can you trust Him as your resurrection and your life? How can you and I be sure that Jesus is our resurrection and our life? I'll tell you how you can know. This miracle was not only a sign of what Jesus does internally in our hearts, it was also a sign of what Jesus was going to do Himself. Jesus is going to go to the cross. And there on the cross, He is going to receive the punishment for all our sins. The wrath of God is going to be poured out upon Him and He is going to endure the most hellish suffering mankind has ever faced. He's going to die. He's going to be put in a tomb. And then He's going to resurrect and come out of that grave conquering death, hell, and the grave. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that's how you know Jesus didn't just raise from the dead in the hearts of the disciples on the third day. He really did raise again from the dead and was seen by many witnesses, the Apostle Paul says. And if He's dead and still in the grave, then all of us are without hope. But if He is resurrected and if He has come out of that grave, then we have hope in our suffering and in our hardship and our affliction. And we have the hope that our suffering can only last our lifetime. And that when we die, we don't really die. We spend eternity with Him. Let's pray.